Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast with me, Dr. Katani. In this episode, we're exploring what we can discover about our evolution from our DNA and what evolutionary secrets might be contained in the ancient DNA of our ancestors. Where did we come from? And how are we related to the ancient species that came before us? Asking questions like these is part of what makes us human. But genetically speaking, what really does make us human? Well, Swedish geneticist Svante Pebo is helping us find out. And, as has recently been announced, his work has led to him winning the 2022 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine for his discoveries concerning the genomes of extinct hominins and human evolution, as the committee put it. Pebo was the first to sequence DNA from our closest ancient human relatives, the Neanderthals, who went extinct tens of thousands of years ago, revealing that we still have traces in our modern human genes that connect us to these ancient ancestors. Sequencing DNA this old is no mean feat. Bodies decompose, with only traces left in bones after thousands of years. Over time, the DNA molecule itself also breaks down, making it tricky to read and piece together to get sequences of whole genes, let alone whole genomes. Ancient DNA is also likely to be contaminated with other DNA, for example from bacteria or present-day DNA, whether from humans or other species, which further confuses things. But this didn't stop Pebo. It was while he was studying for his doctorate at Uppsala University in Sweden during the 1980s that he first caused a stir by trying, and succeeding, to isolate DNA from a 2,400-year-old Egyptian mummy. However, this wasn't what his PhD was meant to be about. Peber was supposed to be studying how a protein in adenoviruses affects the immune system, but he had always been fascinated by archaeology and ancient secrets. Fearing a reprimand from his doctoral supervisor, he carried out his experiments in secret, liaising with a friendly professor of Egyptology to get hold of small samples from 36 different mummies in museums in Uppsala and Berlin. Peber snuck around the lab at night, analysing the samples, initially looking at them down the microscope to see if there were any traces of genetic material lurking in there. When he spotted signals suggesting that there was still DNA within the samples, he set about extracting it and cloning it, effectively putting small fragments of DNA into bacteria so that they could be amplified and sequenced. And, amazingly, it worked. It wouldn't be the first time that a grad student has gone somewhat off-piste in their project, but it paid off. Peber bagged himself a single-author paper in the journal Nature, published in 1985, describing his initial extraction and analysis of mummy DNA. This is an impressive achievement for a young scientist, and certainly gathered a lot of attention. Although Pebo himself has since raised questions about whether the mummy samples were contaminated with modern DNA, it was enough to set him firmly on the path towards the past and his ultimate goal of sequencing the Neanderthal genome. 
He headed to the University of California, Berkeley, to work with Alan Wilson, a pioneering geneticist working in the brand new field of paleogenetics, the study of ancient DNA. And he soon set about trying to find new techniques to study this fragile and often fickle molecule. Pebo initially started extracting and analysing mitochondrial DNA, much smaller stretches of DNA found within the power stations in our cells, rather than the larger chromosomes found within the nucleus of the cell, known as nuclear DNA, which we usually think of as making up the human genome. This is because each cell has many thousands of copies of the mitochondrial genome, whereas there's only one copy of the human genome per cell, increasing the chances of being able to get a handle on these ancient sequences. In 1997, he and his colleagues managed to sequence a region of mitochondrial DNA from a 40,000-year-old Neanderthal bone found in Germany in 1856, the first time that anyone in the world managed to see what a piece of this ancient human's genome looked like. The team's analysis suggested that the Neanderthal DNA was very different to modern humans, and they conclude that Neanderthals went extinct without contributing mitochondrial DNA to modern humans, supporting the idea that modern humans and Neanderthals were truly two separate species. However, more recent analysis from Pebo and others suggests that Neanderthal mitochondrial DNA actually came from early humans in the first place, and their work went on to show that there must have been multiple gene flow events that's the scientific term for sexy times, between Homo sapiens and our Neanderthal cousins along the way. Moving to the University of Munich in Germany in the 1990s, Pebo continued to work on his methods for extracting, sequencing and analysing ancient DNA. He then headed to Leipzig in 1997 to become director of the newly founded Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology. It was here that he and his colleagues, including Michael Hofreiter, figured out a new technique called multiplexing, which enabled them to piece together fragmented sequences from extremely small ancient DNA samples. The team demonstrated their technique by sequencing the mitochondrial genome of a woolly mammoth in 2006. This was a major step forward as it offered the opportunity to start exploring the less abundant nuclear DNA, which is protected by proteins and better preserved than mitochondrial chromosomes, in theory allowing them to sequence whole genes or even a whole genome. And it was thanks to this advance and other new techniques that Pebo and his team finally achieved their dream, revealing for the first time the draft sequence of the full Neanderthal genome, published in 2010. The team were able to read nearly 3 billion letters of the Neanderthal genome, thanks to DNA from three females who lived in Croatia nearly 40,000 years ago. Comparisons with modern human DNA showed that Europeans and Asians share up to 4% of their DNA with Neanderthals, while Africans share very little, showing that the two species have met and interbred after some Homo sapiens left Africa, but before we made our way across Asia. Over the years, Pebo has become a leading expert in getting DNA out of old, dead stuff, whether that's bones, skin, teeth or even poop, and reading its secrets. He's sequenced DNA from ancient sloths, cave bears, mowers, woolly mammoths, extinct bees and ancestral humans, shedding light on long-hidden evolutionary origins and relationships between species. 
One of the most dramatic findings came in 2012, when he and his team sequenced DNA isolated from a tiny 40,000-year-old finger bone found in the Denisova cave in the Altai Mountains in Siberia. From this single sample, they discovered an entirely new long-gone species of humans known as Denisovans. Not only that, but like the Neanderthals, the Denisovans had not been able to resist the charms of Homo sapiens, with people in some regions of Southeast Asia sharing up to 6% of their genes with these long-lost relatives. Coming right up to the present day, Pabo also found that a major genetic risk factor for severe COVID-19 is inherited from Neanderthals, thanks to a small segment of DNA carried by around half of people in South Asia and one in six Europeans. There's been plenty written over the years and over the past few weeks about the impact of Svante Pebo's discoveries and how they have helped shape our understanding of how we came to be here, including his own book, Neanderthal Man in Search of Lost Genomes. I've popped a few links in the page for this podcast at geneticsunzip.com. And you can also check out our previous episodes exploring human origins. Paper has also made significant contributions in other areas of human evolution, such as his work on the FOXP2 gene, which is thought to contribute to the evolution of human speech and language. Paber's Nobel Prize may seem like a bit of a left-field surprise, but in my opinion, it's no less richly deserved than a breakthrough in medicine or molecular biology. And in a nice step forward for LGBT scientists, he's the first openly bisexual Nobel laureate, as far as I can tell. Incidentally, Pebo isn't the first person in his family to win a Nobel Prize. His father, Sune Bergstrom, a biochemist, won the 1982 Nobel Prize for Physiology or Medicine for his work investigating a group of compounds known as prostaglandins, although I wouldn't take that as evidence of a Nobel gene. Peber's work is showing us who we are as a species and how we came to be here, our most fascinating story. Back in 2008, he was interviewed by Jane Gitchier for PLOS Genetics. He said, What one dreams about is defining the genetic changes that we all share today, but that made modern humans so special. That made us colonise the whole place, every little speck of land on the planet, which, after all, archaic humans had not done. They had been around for two million years, but they never crossed the water where they couldn't see land on the other side. Gitche wrote, Svante Pebo works on the edge of what's possible. He ignites our imagination, unlocking tightly held secrets in ancient remains. Who knows what other secrets we will find out. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast. Find us online at geneticsunzip.com and on Twitter at geneticsunzip. And while you're at it, why not tell a friend so more people can discover and enjoy the show? Life is tough on the roof of the world. The lofty heights of the Himalayan mountains, more than four kilometres up, 
present a breathless environment with around 40% less oxygen than at sea level, conditions that would quickly sicken or even kill most of us. But some hardy humans not only survive there, but they thrive. Tibetans have lived in the thin mountain air for more than 6,000 years thanks to a gene variant they originally inherited from the Denisovans, the elusive human species first identified by Svante Pebo and his team from a sample in the Altai Mountains around 1,500 miles north of the Himalayas. The thin air has favoured the persistence of one particular version of a gene called EPAS1, which allows these mountain dwellers to get along just fine, despite the shortage of oxygen. The story starts in 2010, when Rasmus Nielsen and his colleagues at the University of California, Berkeley, compared the genomes of 50 high-altitude Tibetans with Han Chinese and people with European ancestry from Denmark, all living less than two kilometres above sea level. The results were striking, with the team finding many genetic differences between the Chinese and the Tibetans, groups that separated around 2,750 years ago. Over half of the 30 biggest differences between the Tibetan and Chinese genomes were in genes linked to oxygen transport in the blood. And the biggest difference was near EPAS1, with a specific version being found in 87% of the Tibetans, but only 9% of the Han Chinese. So, what does it do? All of us have an EPAS1 gene which helps us respond to low oxygen conditions by producing more haemoglobin, the protein in our red blood cells that transports oxygen around the body. So you might expect that the particular version found in Tibetans might make them produce loads of haemoglobin so they can make the most of the reduced oxygen found at high altitudes. But you'd be wrong. Instead, they found the opposite – Tibetans with the EPAS1 variant actually had lower haemoglobin levels than people living closer to sea level. Having very high levels of haemoglobin and red cells in the blood can increase the risk of blood clots and strokes. So instead, the researchers suggest that the variant may lead to a reduced number of red blood cells, thinning the blood and reducing the risk of strokes at high altitude. In 2014, Nielsen and his colleagues made another curious discovery. Not only does the Tibetan version of EPAS-1 seem to be unique to this population, it appears to have come from Denisovans. But it's not only high-altitude humans who have traces of ancestral ghosts in their DNA. It's their pets too. Tibetan mastiffs are dogs that look like they're built for the mountains, with thick fur, large sturdy bodies and a fiercely loyal temperament that makes them ideal for guarding homes and livestock against predators. Around 24,000 years ago, dogs made their way from China's lowlands to the Tibetan plateau alongside human travellers. Along the way, these early hounds quickly adapted to the harsh conditions and low oxygen found in the mountains, becoming the big bear-like breed we see today. But inside their burly bodies, these dogs also gained a variant in EPAS-1 that enabled them to become the top of the world's top dogs. The source? A long-dead ghost wolf. In 2016, 
researchers led by Zhen Wang from the Shanghai Institutes for Biological Sciences in China sequenced DNA from 29 good doggies and assorted relatives, including highland and lowland grey wolves from China, Tibetan mastiffs, Chinese lowland village dogs, and a golden jackal. They found two regions of DNA in the mastiffs that weren't present in any other dogs, and appeared to have come from mountain-dwelling grey wolves. Regions encompassing the EPAS1 gene, along with another gene called HBB, which is also linked to high-altitude living. A deeper analysis of 166 canine genomes in 2020 discovered that while Tibetan and Himalayan wolves are closely related to each other, around 40% of their genome comes from an unknown wolf-like species that long separated from living wolves and dogs, and that the high-altitude EPAS1 variant that's found in Tibetan mastiffs and wolves probably came from this ancient ghost wolf. The likely conclusion is that the precursors of today's Tibetan mastiffs must have mated with grey wolves who were already roaming the frozen peaks more than 20,000 years ago and pinched their EPAS1 gene in the process. And in case you're wondering, humans and dogs aren't the only species with variations in EPAS1 that help them live on the roof of the world. There's also evidence for similar EPAS1 variants in Tibetan horses and deer mice. The story of EPAS1 is a neat example of how genetic variants can get into a population and be strongly selected for if they bring a sufficiently useful advantage. After all, anyone throwing up and blacking out from altitude sickness a few thousand feet up a mountain isn't likely to be in the mood for passing their genes on, and thin air also makes it biologically harder to conceive babies. So there's a pretty strong selective pressure for the high-altitude EPAS1 variant to stick around. As we gather and analyse more genomes from populations all over the world and search for signatures of selection, who knows what other ancestral spectres and superpowers may still be lurking in the genomes of modern humans and animals today. While it might not be as dramatic a superpower as being able to live four kilometres up a freezing mountain, the ability of many humans to drink milk in adulthood is certainly handy. Most animals can drink milk in infancy, but as they grow, the lactase gene that digests lactose, the sugar found in milk, gets switched off. After this point, drinking milk results in a lot of stomach discomfort diarrhoea, wind, and general gastric unpleasantness. But around a third of the global population, especially those of European ancestry like me, have a genetic variation that allows the lactase gene to stay switched on indefinitely, known as lactase persistence, allowing us to chug the white stuff without a problem. As the story goes, which I covered in my Radio 4 programme Ingenious about the milkshake gene, the spread of this gene through populations in some parts of the world coincided with the rise in dairy farming. In turn, this enabled people to get more protein and fat in their diets, grow healthy and strong, and outcompete the non-milk-drinking populations around them. It's a nice example of genetic selection working hand-in-hand hand with cultural evolution, helping to shape our human story. But the latest research suggests that this neat evolutionary just-so story may not be true. 
A new study published in 2022 provides an alternative timeline. Bringing together an impressive team of more than 100 scientists, including geneticists, chemists, archaeologists and more, the researchers studied traces of animal facts found on ancient pottery, indicating dairy consumption, together with DNA analysis of ancient skeletons and modern humans. The results painted a radically different picture of the past showing that milk-drinking people who were living in Eurasia from about 10,000 years ago, when we know that dairy farming started to get going, didn't have the genetic variant for lactase persistence. Yet, they drank milk anyway. In fact, the persistent version of the gene didn't start to become commonplace in Europe until around 3,000 years ago. So, was everyone just putting up with a runny tummy and farting for thousands of years? It turns out, probably yes. Although the side effects of drinking milk for those who can't fully digest it aren't always pleasant, it's far from fatal. Until, that is, there's something more serious to worry about, like famine or disease. If there's little other food available than milk, or you're suffering from a disease that's already weakened your body, then the digestive distress caused by drinking milk could prove fatal. So, during the Bronze Age, a time of numerous epidemic diseases and famines, people with the lactase persistence gene variant would have a survival advantage, meaning that it started to spread through the population. Rather than farming being a driver of lactase persistence, famine may have underpinned it instead. That's all for now. Next time, we're taking a trip to the little shop of genetic horrors, looking at the evolution of carnivorous plants. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, music credits, and everything else, head over to geneticsunzip.com. You can find us on Twitter, at geneticsunzip. And please do take a moment to leave us a rating in the Spotify app or review us on Apple Podcasts. It does make a difference, and it does help more people discover the show. This episode of Genetics Unzipped was written and presented by me, Katani, with additional research and scripting by Eleanor Bird. It's produced by First Create the Media for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learned societies dedicated to promoting research, training, teaching and public engagement in all areas of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music's composed by Dan Pollard, our logo's designed by James Mayle, and audio production is by Sally LePage. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.